is cancel culture a real thing? Because I feel like we've overblown this to the point where we believe in something that doesn't really exist. Like, I don't believe cancel culture is nearly as rampant as this poll and a lot of other people would suggest it is. Welcome to The Lost Debate, unconventional media for the rest of us. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. And Corey, there's a lot happening in this crazy world we live in. Where are we going to start? It is crazy, Robbie. We got a lot to talk about today. Coming up, revelations about that infamous Steele dossier that alleged a connection between Donald Trump and Russian interference in the 2016 election. Was it all just fake news? We discussed the newly announced University of Austin created by prominent anti-cancel culture figures. Ravi lays down the proposed Parents' Bill of Rights. And do you know someone who is too woke? I'm going to explain why that word woke has basically become meaningless. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about this infrastructure bill. And it seems like after a lot of ales, Biden has finally got a win in his column. Yeah, and we were pretty hard on Biden and Democrats last week, so I think it's important to to recognize what happened at the end of the week, which was there was a Friday jobs report that was way better than a lot of analysts expected. And not only was it strong for the month of October, but they went back and revised up the September jobs numbers. So mm -hmm. good news for Biden there. And then you have President Biden taking the first of several victory laps Saturday after the House passed his bipartisan infrastructure package. This infrastructure package which passed the House, and this is $1.2 trillion for critical infrastructure like roads, bridges, broadband access, fixing our lead pipes, electric charging stations. I mean, there's so much in this bill. And what I find fascinating, Corey, and I want to get your perspective on it is the vote breakdown was interesting because it was sort of bipartisan. So there were 13 members of the Republican Party who voted for this bill. And then there were some Democrats who didn't vote for it. Yes, the so-called squad led mostly by Congresswoman AOC. There were about six members who decided to vote against this particular bill. And the reason for voting for it was kind of interesting. AOC actually tweeted out that uh, she wanted to protect our party, talking about the Democratic Party, to protect the party from the disappointment and collapse in turnout from communities like mine that occurs when we tell them we did things we didn't do. So basically it sounds like that these individuals, these super progressive individuals of Congress basically decided that they weren't going to vote for a bill that their party was pushing just because like, they, they felt like it didn't go far enough and they were concerned that it wasn't being paired with the Build Back Better bill. But that just seems like this all or nothing sort of kind of approach that we've seen from AOC. Like if we can't get every single thing in our platform, then we're just not going to negotiate. We're not going to do anything. And that just seems like you know, useless government, in my opinion. Well, I, I'm, the part of this that I'm sympathetic to is that she is right that if if the squad didn't insist that this infrastructure bill was passed at the same time as Build Back Better, that they wouldn't have a lot of confidence that Manchin and Cinema would would be on board for the larger package. I think they're right about the politics of that. Mm -hmm. But where I'm with you is that AOC said in this tweet, for example, we can't basically promise one thing to people and then deliver something else. And my issue with that is then don't overpromise. Exactly. Yeah. And two is if, if everybody voted on the infrastructure bill the way AOC and the squad did, there would be actually nothing. nothing so you would actually deliver even less than otherwise. And so that's my issue here. 
And there's also some backlash that the Secretary of Transportation is getting. Uh, oh, good old Mayor Pete, who I feel like you're a big fan of for some reason. Um, <laughs> he basically made some comments about the infrastructure bill that are being taken a little bit out of context by the right wing. Let's take a look at those comments. The construct of how you will deconstruct the racism that was built into the roadways that you talked to the Grio earlier when you broke that information with us. Can you talk to us about how that could be deconstructed? I'm still surprised that some people were surprised when I pointed to the fact that uh, if a highway was built for the purpose of dividing a white and a black neighborhood, or if an underpass was constructed such that a bus carrying mostly black and Puerto Rican kids uh, to a beach, or there would have been, uh, in New York was, was designed uh, too low for it to pass by, that that obviously reflects racism that went into those design choices. Um, I don't think we have anything to lose by confronting that simple reality. And I think we have everything to gain by acknowledging it and then dealing with it, which is why the reconnecting communities, that billion dollars, is something we want to get to work right away. So people had a field day with these comments, uh, especially people on the right were ridiculing Mayor Pete for making these comments. And one thing that's confusing to me is that I agree that with a lot of critics of the Democratic Party, for example, who say that they see race where it doesn't exist sometimes, et cetera. But this mm -hmm. is an example where he's right on the history. Like anybody who grew up in New York who studied our history knows that this guy named Robert Moses, mm -hmm. who was in charge of public works here, and he did things like what Mayor Pete is describing. Like he would design public works to exclude people, including mm -hmm. the very example he gave. Mm -hmm. So what I would want our, the critics here is like, these are the examples where you have to acknowledge the history of racism. Like it's an objective fact that these things were designed and they excluded people and that those had had and continue to have real world consequences. Yes, I agree that the criticism of Pete here is very off base and it's just consistent with the notion that we just need to forget about this history and move on. However, I do believe that it also highlights a fixation that the left has on history, especially when it comes to things dealing with race. I mean, you know, Pete may be very correct about what New York City did with its bridges to, you know, harm communities of color. The problem is there's no way you can fix that for kids growing up in the 1940s who weren't able to go to those beaches. There are yeah. re very real things that, that black and brown communities have to deal with today, dealing with infrastructure and dealing with a whole wide range of issues that aren't being addressed as much as trying to make up for slavery or right. trying to make up for the Jim Crow laws. Like that all happened. There's absolutely nothing that anybody can do to change that. All we can do is take what's going on right now, pick it up and move forward. And that's why I think that even though I, I totally, you know, agree with what Pete is saying here, that that should be addressed. I, I feel like there's a fixation though on these historical issues that just, there's no way to address them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree. One part of it though is I don't want to deny that history, but I agree with you that Maybe he's there's a better example he could give. So instead of giving the example of Robert Moses in New York City mm -hmm. from decades ago, mm -hmm. he can give an example of actual uh, harm that's happening today yes. by current policy and say that's the billion dollars he mentions, which he mm -hmm. then moves to a forward-looking framework. He'd be like, look, there's this thing happening today that I want to solve, not necessarily this history piece. And you know, if I'm being critical of Pete on this, it's that I think he's he's trying to be smart here. He's trying to be like, I'm a well-read guy. I know yeah. this history, so I'm going to point to this this historical example. Whereas I, I would beg him to think about the politics of it, which is a lot of people who are critical of like so-called equity in public mm -hmm. policy think that they're being asked to sacrifice today for things that people did wrong 
long time ago that they're not responsible mm -hmm. for today. And I think good politics would be like, hey, here's this thing today that's going yeah. on that either is explicitly racist or has really unequal consequences. Mm -hmm. And we want to solve that with this policy. And that's the kind of politics I'd love to see. Yeah, things like gentrification, redlining, you know, you know, focusing on those issues rather than something that happened like 80, 90 years ago that has little effect. So yeah, I totally agree. Right, or like, red, you know, redlining is a good example. It happened 90 years ago, still has effects today. Yeah, has right? more, more of a direct effect than yeah. something like, you know, bridges. But I, I totally I totally agree with the sentiment that, that Pete was trying to make here. So moving on to another story that's really making the rounds here, uh, talking about this Steele dossier. So for people who don't know, the Steele dossier, uh, Christopher Steele was this uh, ex-British spy who was working for um, Fusion GPS, which is basically this company that was hired to basically find dirt on Trump. And now we're finding out that one of the main people, uh, Igor Danchenko, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. <laughs> I may not be pronouncing that right. And if I'm not, just, you know, he's got bigger problems to worry about. Uh, he's a Russian analyst who actually worked for Christopher Steele, and he basically provided a lot of the information that went into this dossier. And now he's been arrested for lying to the FBI about the vast majority of the information he provided. So how uh, important is it that we've now revealed that? And, and, and what are the implications for this when it comes to the Trump-Russian investigation as a whole? Well, I think this is really confusing for a lot of people. And my head is spinning just from even trying to untangle this. Mm -hmm. So there, I think most people commingle a lot of different things. They commingle the general atmosphere of Trump in Russia, including mm -hmm. public statements Trump made, but also accusations about things he may have done privately, mm -hmm. the Ukraine investigation, which is different, the Steele dossier, which is what we're talking about today, which included allegations that Trump was super close to Russia, but mm -hmm. also that he'd be subject to blackmail from Russia for things like, for instance, this thing that they called the P-tape. That particular allegation, people were like, well, we don't know. Sounds far but there were other parts of this dossier that people took seriously. And what you've described, this this revelation that the key source in this document had lied under oath and and potentially provided a lot of faulty information is, is a bombshell for the American press. Yeah, and that's the point that I would like to focus on is the responsibility of journalism here, because there were so many people, particularly left-leaning news correspondents, people like Rachel Maddow, who really picked up this Steele dossier and ran with it. They were reporting on it every night. They were talking about the bombshell revelations, things like that. And none of it was really corroborated. None of it was really proven. And they, they still ran with it. And now you've got most of the, the left media is trying to ignore it, kind of trying to say, you know, we're not going to touch that. But then you got people like Richard Maddow who are actually doubling down and they're still trying to say that, oh, this is just a cover up of things like that. When we have evidence now that this guy so, was lying. So her point is, what's her cover up allegation? So she's saying that that this indictment is a cover up? Well, yeah, because this indictment is, is basically the result of an investigation that initially started under Barr when Trump was still in office. Oh, so into the, the, the Russian special prosecutor was yes. named by Barr mm -hmm. yeah. uh, because Barr was trying to attack the... The, the Russian investigation yeah. in general. And so like her whole thing is that this is sort of kind of a, a, a political, uh, uh, you know, a uh, partisan effort to, to basically discredit the entire Russian investigation, which right. there may be some evidence to that. Yeah. But the reality is there's still the hardcore evidence that the Steele dossier was mostly fabricated. Yeah, I think this is why this is the people's heads are spinning at home is because we're talking about an investigation into an investigation. <laughs> and so that's what's tricky about this. But yeah. I think w for Maddow, what I would push people in her camp to think about is if you've got issues with the existence of this investigation and the investigation, that's one thing, mm -hmm. but provide some evidence that this particular indictment is wrong. Like mm -hmm. is, is, is her contention that this guy didn't lie and that 
that somehow this dossier is credible because mm -hmm. she's put out a lot of reports suggesting that key parts of this dossier are true. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think went as far as a lot of people in the media to add credibility to the dossier as a whole, you know, even though she picked and choose which parts of it she wanted to report on. So my point to her is you could continue to have your critique of the existence of this investigation, but if you're going to say, but if you're going to refuse to apologize for your previous reporting, I'm going to need more than merely the fact that you don't like the existence of this investigation. I mean, there's a lot of things we have to be clear about. I mean, for instance, like the Fusion GPS, like they were initially hired by Republicans to investigate Trump. And then that information ended up getting turned over to Hillary once Trump got the nomination. So, it's, so you know, th this whole Steele dossier, it could be argued that it was started by more conservative sources, but it ended up becoming a big part of the playbook for Hillary and the Democrats. And then obviously, once he was in office, it became a huge, you know, part of the Mueller investigation and things like that. And the Mueller report has proven with, without a shadow of a doubt that there was Russian interference in the 2016 election. Like we know that and that that interference was in favor of Trump winning the election because they thought he'd be easier to work with other, you know, outside of Hillary Clinton. But I, for one, was never convinced that Trump personally colluded with Russia because I just personally don't think he's competent enough to pull off such an operation. And so there's never been any credible evidence to suggest that him and his camp were actually involved in the coordination of those types of plans. And I think that that's going to get kind of lost in this whole Steele dossier. People are going to use this Steele dossier as a, as a way to just discredit the entire thing when there are a few problematic things about Russia and Trump. Yeah, I think, and this is where it's prompted me to revisit my own bias on this, which is I was one of those people who thought uh, back in 2017 that not only was Russia hacking our elections and mm -hmm. spreading disinformation, and the spreading disinformation thing has been confirmed by multiple intelligence agencies within the United States, it seems to be the consensus that Russia was trying to interfere in our elections. Now, that's different than saying, like you say, Trump was at the table coordinating with this, the so-called collusion excuse. But it made me, this has prompted me to go back over my own assumptions, which is like, for instance, like the idea of like Kushner, Manafort, who were they meeting with? Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, people like Matt Tybee have pushed back on a lot of these other allegations to say, look, what do we really know? Now, in the end, I'm with you. I think that there's actual problematic things that Russia has done in, in the international sphere in calling for governments, for instance, like when he called on China to investigate Biden, when he used the machinery of government mm -hmm. to try to pressure the Ukrainian government to investigate Biden, which is well established at this point. Those things are still wrong. And so even yeah. if people think that the media had done them wrong on this, those other things are in plain sight. And you could still think that Trump was wrong on those issues while also calling the, the press to task on this. Absolutely. It just sounds like no collusion, no obstruction to me. But we'll have to keep an eye out on this story to see where it well, goes. Well, obstruction is different. Wait, no, the, the obstruction is different. Like when he fired Comey, for example, he was still obstructing that investigation even if the investigation but the investigation was based on bullshit but we'll we'll, we'll, we'll table yeah, yeah. this conversation yeah, yeah. for another day uh but another thing we want to talk about is something i think it's a story that you're very excited about uh and that's this launch of a new university in texas the university of austin uh, this seems like a really interesting story. Yeah, so this is uh, this is different than University of Texas, Texas Austin, mm -hmm. and this is a group of people who you know range from Larry Summers to David Mamet to Neil Ferguson to Ayan Hirsi Ali, who are involved in this new effort to create a university to I think create the next generation of colleges in America, and they're solving a few problems. One is. I think they're trying to offer a lower cost, more efficient version of the university experience. And I think this is 
the part that I think the coverage of this, to the extent there is any, there's very little coverage of this right now, mm -hmm. is missing this part of the story, which is when they made this announcement, they pointed to the, the high costs of college in America. And over the past 30 years, private college tuition has gone up 2x and public college tuition has gone up 3x, in part because you have bloated bureaucracy, too much administrative and research staff. You have these endowments that are increasing exponentially mm -hmm. while they're not reinvesting into the student experience. And so you have runaway inflation on the cost of universities at the same time that these universities aren't getting better. They're not yeah. getting more innovative. They're not meeting the needs of the day. And something like 40% of students who begin university experience don't finish. And so I'm excited about that particular part of this problem that they're solving. Yeah, but there's another aspect to this school because a lot of the people who are starting it have been outspoken critics of so-called cancel culture. And they've also been very outspoken about the lack of dialogue that's able to take place on college campuses because most college campuses are so left-leaning. And I feel like a lot of that's going to be addressed at this particular university. I mean, how much of that is a part of the equation of why they're starting this? That was also a huge part of their announcement. And I think a lot of the people who are involved in this university are people who've been those prominent critics. Mm -hmm. And I think... The reaction I've seen of this is people are attacking this university in many ways and mocking it because they're saying, well, if you were canceled, how could you have your own university? Mm -hmm. And that debate aside, which I know you're excited about, <laughs> uh, I would just say that if there's any place in America where we should have the free exchange of ideas, mm -hmm. it should be universities. Absolutely. And I'm excited about the idea of creating a university that's explicit purpose is to create thick-skinned people who really get excited to debate people who are different than them. And there was this poll from this uh, organization called Heterodox Academy that came out recently that said 62% of students on college campuses feel like the environment is shutting down people who um, have opinions that they think are unpopular. Mm -hmm. And so I think students want this. I think this will be a pretty popular concept. And I think if they can marry the the, the fixes to just structural problems of the university with mm -hmm. fixes to the climate of debate on campuses, then I'm pretty excited. And it gets us to this conversation about cancel culture, right? Because I think a poll just came out from, I believe it was Heal Harris X poll that basically said that around 71% of registered voters think cancel culture has gone too far. And when they say cancel culture, I think they're defining that. Even Merriam-Webster's has a definition for cancel culture that defines it as the practice or tendency of engaging in mass canceling as a way of expressing disapproval or exerting social pressure. And that brings me to my big question regarding cancel culture. Does it even really exist? Like, like is cancel culture a real thing? Because I feel like we've overblown this to the point where we believe, there, we believe in something that doesn't really exist. Like, I don't believe cancel culture is nearly as rampant as this poll and a lot of other people would suggest it is. Yeah, and there's it's not just this poll. There's a Rasmussen poll that came out shortly before this that gave a slightly different definition of cancel culture. And uh, also, I think it was nearly identical results, 72%. And it mm -hmm. crosses political boundaries, right? Democrat, Republican, independent. And so I take people seriously when they say that they're concerned about this, because I am too. And mm -hmm. I think you could both believe that the term is being abused by people like, you know, Aaron Rodgers, who I know you're going to talk about when you talk about the the, the word woke, which yeah. I think has a very similar distortion factor in the public Absolutely. debate, mm -hmm. that I do believe that there are too many communities out there that shut down legitimate discussion and debate, whether it's universities, whether it's Twitter, whether it's a lot of corporations that we have now that shut down 
legitimate disagreement and exchange of ideas, you could still believe that. And that some people I think are unfairly given consequences for having a legitimate disagreement versus saying that people are getting like permanently banned mm -hmm. in a way that like maybe that version of cancellation isn't as prominent. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think it is. I mean, I think this idea of canceling a person, like when we talk about a person who may have said something that was unpopular on Twitter and they get so-called canceled for it. But I mean, do they really get canceled? In many ways, a lot of times the arguments that they're trying to make get amplified just from the act of trying to cancel them. I mean, look at what's going on with Dave Chappelle. Right. I mean, he's, in many ways, he's broken cancel culture. I mean, he's, it almost seems like it's impossible to cancel them. And there are other people like that, like Kanye West. There's other people who've said all kinds of things that the majority of the public disagrees with. Yeah, it, it, it only amplifies their point. So to me, it's like, how can you really silence a person? How can you really cancel a person? I think your point goes into like, you know, losing a job or having some type of consequence like that. But I don't feel like that's getting canceled. I feel like that's getting... Uh, you know, that's getting some type of, there's some consequence to something you said, and there may be things that are going too far with that, but I, I still just don't feel like it's really possible to fully cancel anyone. Yeah, I mean, but like, what's the standard that, that we kill somebody? Like, that's the only thing that meets cancellation, is that if somebody has an idea you just Well, not necessarily kill, we could throw them in jail, or we could and just like, you know, like, for instance, like Trump, like, he got canceled from Twitter, like, that was canceling, because we completely silenced his ability to communicate his messages on that platform. He's still able to communicate his messages. What, but then I think there's plenty of cancellations. Like, so for instance, FIRE, the, this organization that studies universities, mm -hmm. studies deplatforming, meaning people mm -hmm. being disinvited from universities to speak because people object to their views. And, you know, there's a prominent example of this mm -hmm. recently when a University of Chicago professor was disinvited from MIT. Mm -hmm. He was going to give a, a lecture about climate. Mm -hmm. but because of past views on affirmative action was disinvited. Mm -hmm. That's cancellation because that's his platform that he wasn't invited to. Or David Shore, who's a mm -hmm. data scientist for the Democratic Party, who during the height of the George Floyd protests tweeted out an academic study that suggested that rioting could hurt Democrats at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. And he lost his job because of that. Mm -hmm. and his job in that in that case is the equivalent of Twitter for Trump. It's his platform. Did so he get he lost a new job? job. Yeah, he got a new job. Well, then how did he get Twitter? Did he really get canceled, Trump started his, he's starting his own social media so company. That's, so that's my point. It's like, you know, if you're able to still have your message reach the people, then to me, you haven't been canceled. There may have been a serious attempt to cancel you. But in this day and age, you can always flip that to the other side to, to get people who rally around what you're saying to support you in other ways. So I agree that there's, there's some problematic things and I do kind of agree with this poll that there's definitely some people taking very extreme measures against people who just have different opinions and I, I totally agree that that's problematic. But I just, I don't really, I think, you, I think you have to really do a lot to just get totally canceled. I feel like there's just nobody who can just get totally canceled because whoever gets canceled is always gonna be somebody who tries to push them just in the, in the defiance of cancel culture. Yeah, so I think like, we could quibble with the word, right? Maybe we'll call it intolerant culture. Like there's just a culture out there where people are intolerant of ideas mm -hmm. that they disagree with. And it's not just a left-right thing, right? I think mm -hmm. there are versions of this across the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. I spend more time, I think, as does the media in general on the left-wing versions of mm -hmm. this. Uh, and we don't have enough time to talk about why that's the case. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we'll, we'll keep this debate going for another time. And I know that this is something that is red hot in our political debates. It seems like the GOP has seized on this issue as For an sure. issue that they think is gonna help them at the ballot box. So somehow I think this is not the last time we're gonna have this discussion. I don't think it is either. Coming up, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Parental Bill of Rights and how it might affect your children.
What's actually happening? What's actually happening? So coming out of this Virginia gubernatorial election, the big discussion in political circles around America is about education. This is the first time in a long time that the GOP has gone on the offense on education. And they convinced a lot of suburban voters to go their way because in part about this debate around CRT, critical race theory. And after the election, Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republicans in the House, announced that they're gonna take this debate even further in the midterm elections, and they're gonna be pushing for a parents' bill of rights. And we make this promise to you. We will soon unroll a parents' bill of rights. It doesn't matter your wealth, the color of your skin. Once you have a child, it is no longer what you become. It is now what opportunity your children will have. You have a right to know what's being taught in the school. You have a right to participate. Education is the great equalizer. We're all created equal, and we're gonna make sure we make that happen across this country. So that brings us to our segment, What's Actually Happening, Parents' Bill of Rights. And I wanna start by just acknowledging that this is good politics. What's gonna happen here, predictably, is that Democrats who count the teachers' unions as um, one of their key constituencies are gonna run to the defense of teachers, and it's gonna be a debate about teachers versus parents. And that is a bad debate for Democrats. Not because teachers don't deserve to be defended, but because it's too binary. And we also have a whole other constituency of kids to worry about here. But another problem here is that a lot of polling out there suggests that we have a very different experience in our education system, depending on who you are. And inexplicably, since the start of this pandemic, when polled, Democrats somehow have gained confidence in their kids' education, while independents and Republicans have lost confidence that their kids are getting a great education. So we just have very different experiences out there about what's been happening over the past few years in our schools. So it's good politics, but is it good policy? That's what I wanna talk about today. And I wanna start by just talking about the fact that we're calling this a bill of rights, but really these are not rights. Like rights are these inalienable, inalterable things that we give people and say, if we don't deliver on this, you can hold us accountable, and it's just a guarantee that whatever we say is gonna happen is gonna happen. These are more just like a series of policies and principles that are being proposed, but they're still really important. And so what I wanna do is before anything is announced, because we don't know when the GOP is gonna announce their National Parents' Bill of Rights, I wanna help you understand what you can expect to be in that document and which of those ideas are good ideas, which of those are old ideas, and which of those are just things we might have questions about. Let me start with Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri. And this is what he had to say. He said on Twitter, it's time to turn back Joe Biden's effort to shut parents out of their kids' education. I'll introduce a new Parents' Bill of Rights that will protect the right of every parent to know what their kid is being taught, who is doing the teaching, and what groups or companies are getting school contracts and money. It will also protect parents' rights to show up and protect their kids and be involved. Parents aren't the problem, they're the solution. So that's Josh Hawley's tweet. So he's gonna introduce in the Senate a Parents' Bill of Rights. McCarthy's talked about in the House and for House campaigns. So this is gonna be a big debate. And I wanna start with Hawley, right? What's, what, what is he saying that's making sense and what is he saying that we may have issues with? Number one, he's saying parents should have the right to know what's being taught in schools. On the face of this, this sounds great, right? Every parent should know what's being taught in schools. And in, and in many places, this is already the policy. But my question as a former school principal is, 
how much do they need to know before a lesson is being taught? Do you need all lesson plans? Do you need all curriculum? Do you need to know everything a teacher is going to say in a classroom before it's being taught? Because in almost no school in America, except some really high-performing schools out there that plan many weeks ahead of time and script everything out, are you going to know every word that's going to come out of a teacher's mouth and every piece of text that kids are going to read and every pedagogy that's going to be used in a classroom? So... I think that this needs to be much more targeted and precise. Like maybe you know the books that are going to be read. Maybe you know the general curriculum standards are going to be used. But if you go too far, this is going to be too onerous, too much red tape. It's going to be too hard to implement. Second, Holly says that we should know, parents should have the right to know who is doing the teaching and what groups and companies are contracting with districts to do curriculum. Those two things are already in place in almost every school district in America. You know who your, your kids' teachers are, and because of Freedom of Information Act laws and open records laws, you should have the ability to know what kind of contracts your district is entering into. Um, and certainly most of these things are disclosed at school board meetings. And then finally, Josh Holly says, you should be able to show up and check on your kids and get involved. This is the flashpoint to me, because I think you know, yeah, we should be able to show up to your kid's school. Everybody can do that. But are you allowed in the classroom? Can you sit next to your kid? Can you argue with the teacher? Can you quibble with the lessons? This could get out of hand really quickly. And our schools could become the equivalent of suburban soccer games where the parents are yelling with the coaches and the teachers and embarrassing their kids and nothing gets taught. So I actually think that could be explosive. And if I were the Republicans, I'd be very careful with rights like that. And if I were Democrats, I would not feel compelled to support stuff like that because I think that those those ideas and policies are going to get unpopular really fast. Now, that's what Josh Hawley had to say. There are actually bills either that have been passed, like in the state of Florida, or that have been proposed, like in the state of Colorado, around Parents' Bill of Rights. And so I want to pick a few of these clauses in these Parents' Bill of Rights across the country and talk about whether these are good ideas or bad ideas. So in Colorado, they give parents, and this was a, a, a bill that was proposed and not passed, they give parents the right to, quote, withdraw a child from any class act or activity that they find objectionable. And the problem with this is any activity, any class, so you know, if a parent wants to pull a kid out of a math class uh, because it's common core, or they want to pull a kid out of an art class or whatever, is that okay? just for any reason. And where does that kid go? Is there enough funding to, to put another adult with that kid if they're not gonna be in the classroom? So there's some practical problems with some of this stuff. The Colorado bill also gives parents the ability to opt out of standardized testing and data collection. That's largely protected in federal law anyway, in part because of progressives and conservatives coming together. We've been weakening the ability to actually pull everybody into our data and standardized testing, and I hate that, but it's, kind of the law in a lot of places already. This opt-out movement has been going on for a long time. So I hate that, but that's not new. Uh, there are also provisions in these bills like Florida and Colorado that allow parents to opt out of state-required immunizations. And this is really bad because we're not just talking about COVID immunizations. We're talking about all immunizations. And these are the immunizations that we have counted on that anybody who's listening to this had to provide documentation for your immunizations. And, and because we all have those immunizations, we're able to defeat certain very deadly diseases that used to decimate populations before this. So that's a bad idea. Like, I think every kid who goes to a public school should have to be immunized the way that we've always counted on in the past. Now, there's some other issues here. Ron DeSantis, when he was announcing 
recently a, uh, a renewed push to even add more provisions to his parents' bill of rights, says that he wants to give parents the ability to sue the school districts to enforce these laws. And then the district has to pay for those lawsuits. And I think that's a huge problem because this could bankrupt school districts. And in certain flashpoint school districts, you're going to have tons and tons of parents suing school districts. And I'm worried that districts aren't going to be able to pay for this. So in conclusion, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Bottom line, here's what I would want to see. I want to see a kid's bill of rights. We should start with the kids, not the parents. And what would I include in this kid's bill of rights? It would be one provision. It would say you have a right to an excellent school. And I would define excellent school, don't have time to talk about it here, but we could peg it to college readiness, right? That you should be able to predict that school down the street is going to get your kid ready for college and prepared for life. And once again, this term right is tricky. So what would it mean to enforce that right? Well, depending on what side of the political spectrum you're in, you could use different teeth. If you're on the right wing, you're a conservative, you could say, all right, if, if I can't guarantee you that excellent school that I'm talking about, because you're a conservative, you believe in things like school vouchers and charter schools. So you should allow that kid to take that money and leave the school system and go to another school with that money, whether it's a private school, a charter school, et cetera. Uh, if you're a Democrat or a liberal, you may be more skeptical of vouchers and charter schools. So what you could do is say, all right, that kid can take the money that I, they would have gotten for going to that district school, that neighborhood school, and they can go to another neighborhood school. They can go to the school in the, in the neighboring uh, school district, or if they live in the city, they can take their kids to the suburbs, and that money becomes portable. And that's how you could actually make that right meaningful. And that's the only provision I would keep in a Bill of Rights for kids. So that's what I want to see. I want to see a kid's Bill of Rights before we start talking about the adults. That's my bottom line. Uh, we'll be back with more. And now it's time for Chef Corey's Food for Thought. Here's your host, Chef Corey Bradford. Welcome to another edition of Chef Corey's Food for Thought, where I cook up my hot takes on hot button issues. These days, one of the hottest topics burning a hole through the internet is this concept of being woke. You hear it all the time. That TikToker was too woke or that tweet wasn't woke enough. A recent op-ed in the New York Times claimed that wokeness was derailing the Democratic Party. Uh, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers said that a woke mob is out to get him because he lied about being vaccinated. Woke has turned into a negative catch-all to describe the progressive agenda in American politics. But what the hell does woke even mean? Like, where did that term originally come from? And how did it become an integral part of the American political language with such force and controversy? Well... Like most popular American trends, woke started in the black community. Also, like most popular American trends, the term was taken from the black community and adopted into the public lexicon with little to no credit given to its originators. Throughout most of the 20th century, the term woke was deeply steeped in African-American culture, where it largely resisted any linguistic colonizing efforts from outside forces. According to an article from Vox, as early as the 1930s, blues artists like Lead Belly were telling black folks to stay woke in areas of the Deep South that were known for showing violence towards black people. The current use of the term was actually sparked by R&B artist Erica Badu, who used the phrase, I stay woke, as the refrain for her 2008 song, Master Teacher. A good song, by the way. Badu was also responsible for making the term go viral when she tweeted, 
Truth requires no belief. Stay woke. Watch closely. Badu made this statement in regards to the imprisonment of the Russian rock band Pussy Ride back in 2012. And this may be the first time the phrase stay woke started trending on Twitter. But 2014 is the year the term woke truly graduated into everyday use, mostly due to the group Black Lives Matter, popularizing the word after the police-related shooting death of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And within a few years, woke suffered the same fate as previous black slang terms such as bling bling, dog, and badonkadonk. It was absorbed into the popular American diction and lost its original meaning. See, at first, staying woke meant being acutely aware of racial injustice in America, specifically injustice aimed at African Americans. Then, as political progressives began using the term more during the rise of Donald Trump, staying woke started being used to refer to things like supporting the Me Too movement, or solidarity with the rights of the members of the LGBTQ community, or more general progressive movements, like being woke about the realities of climate change. Now, all of those movements may have been very well-meaning and meant to create alliances among disenfranchised groups, but a lot of these movements had little to do with the racial issues that first sparked the popular use of the term. And then came the backlash. All of a sudden, woke culture started being blamed for ridiculous things, such as turning Mr. Potato Head into just Potato Head, leading to the insidious rage of conservative Americans who seemed to be particularly concerned with the executive decisions at Hasbro. But there was never a real movement calling for the degendering of Mr. Potato Head, probably, be, probably because that's kind of stupid and activists were more concerned with the actual real life issues of gender based dilemmas. But the problem with the term woke worsened as people who opposed woke culture started using it as an explanation for everything from Dr. Seuss halting the publication of certain books deemed racially insensitive to Nike deciding to pull a pair of shoes that displayed an old ass version of the American flag. There are more than 13 states now. There were even stories of so-called woke mobs going after Chase from Paw Patrol just because he's a police dog. Now, does anyone really think that large amounts of adult voters actually care about the casting of an animated kid series that's essentially about dogs being the only line of defense for a poorly run municipality? And where there are dogs, there are dog whistles. And that's when things got rough. Just like the terms cancel culture and critical race theory, the right wing has been extremely successful at hijacking the term woke and using it as a blanket slur that their followers could spew at anything deemed too liberal. In fact, the weaponizing of the word woke reminds me a lot of the weaponizing of the word liberal. See, back in the day, left-leaning presidents like John F. Kennedy were proud to call themselves liberal. But by the 2000s, conservatives constantly chided liberals just for being liberal. Conservative campaign ads labeled opponents as too liberal for Tennessee. And eventually, the right successfully turned the word liberal into a political swear word. And the left just sat back and accepted it. Today, liberals call themselves progressives, while the word woke has pretty much become the new word for liberal. And the left is basically admitting semantic defeat here again. Folks across the political spectrum are blaming stupid wokeness for the outcome of Virginia's recent governor's race, which led to their first Republican governor in nearly a decade, as well as other Democratic failures from the 2021 elections. The aforementioned unvaccinated Aaron Rodgers came out against the so-called woke mob as a preemptive strike against anyone who would question his decision to straight up lie about being vaccinated. Nearly every Republican with a national name is now blaming everything their constituents culturally disagree with on wokeness. 
while the term has largely been abandoned by both the black community and progressives as a whole. And it's important to note that the irony of a word started by the black community that has literally been turned against the plight of black people in America is not lost on me. All of this to say, the very concept of woke started as a call for respect and equality among different races and cultures in America. Now it's just a pejorative term that refers to anything dealing with social justice that people don't like. So the next time you hear someone using the word woke, really think about how it's being used. Is it referring to something specific or is the word just being used to trigger you? Maybe instead of trying to invent flashy catchphrases and lit political buzzwords, leaders and activists should just focus on how to better communicate their vision for public policy and social change. Ravi, what do you think about the term woke? I mean, what does it invoke when you hear it? Yeah, I... I now I'm trying to think of when I first heard it, and it's it's interesting that you peg it to 2014. I mean mm -hmm. that sounds right. I mean, it it seems I seem I can't even remember a time when it was used literally. It seems yeah. like I can only now remember it being used as an attack. Like, yeah, exactly. It, seem, it seems so long ago that it was used to mean a good thing. Yeah, just like five years ago, uh, the artist Childish Gambino had a song where he said, like, stay woke. And like back then, it still had all these connotations of like telling people, hey, be aware of what's really going on in the system. But right. now, like you said, like every time I hear that word, it's usually someone on the right saying that this is too woke or woke media did this or stupid wokeness did that. And it's just right. like, you know, it just seems like the right is very, very, very good at flipping words that the left creates and then using it against them right like fake news like yeah fake news exactly. yeah 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 i mean it's another term that you only think about it like as as it relates to trump attacking the news but the term if i remember it correctly mm -hmm. was being used to attack misinformation on facebook leading into the 2016 Absolutely. election right yeah it did and you did it was and then trump was like no you're fake news and then yeah. it just like flipped the whole thing it's it's crazy and it's genius. crazy it's it is it's, it's, it is genius but it's weird because you would think liberals would be better at like articulating themselves and yet they're not but it's just one of those things that like we have to kind of watch out for and like i said i i just whenever i hear the term work i don't even listen to the conversation anymore because it's just it just doesn't have the same meaning but uh, we want to thank you all for watching us. Make sure to subscribe to YouTube and our podcast for more. And we'll see you next time.